This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 15, New Oceanic Pathways. The Europeans were the first to have a perception of the Pacific, to differentiate it from the Atlantic, that other branch of the world ocean that they had come to know well. Their entry into the Pacific reflects two lines of interest. First, ocean as avenue to East Asia, known to be a source of great wealth. The Portuguese Magellan, sailing under Spanish flag, had found a passage round the southern end of America through the straits bearing his name. The Dutch were the first to round Cape Horn, which they spelled with two O's, named for the Dutch hometown of some of the sailors. The Spaniard Balboa is the first European to see the eastern Pacific at its American center by crossing the narrow isthmus of Panama. The Spaniards then give up the horn so far south, so remote, so dangerous. Instead, they use Balboa's route or cross the waste of Mexico, even though it requires transshipment, breaking bulk for cargo, which is both cumbersome and expensive. As routes to Asia, these did not compare to the African Cape of Good Hope. A second line of European interest was the Pacific as avenue to lands expected to exist in its vast expanse, especially Terra Australis Incognita, a putative, huge, temperate landmass balancing the weight of the globe, a necessary counterpart, they thought, to Eurasia. Control of it, obviously, could alter the strategic balance of the world. British writers like Swift and Defoe stimulate interest in this great unknown, the so-called South Sea. Swift's satiric Gulliver plays with the idea, exciting the imagination. Defoe, in his survival narrative, Robinson Crusoe, 1719, speaks to the spirit of individualism that European explorers brought to the Pacific and elsewhere. The Pacific long remained a region outside the realm of reality, a stimulus to geographical fantasy, a longing for unknown utopias, what Atlantis had been for generations. The 18th century was a great age of European Pacific exploration, much of it done by warships, British, French, and even Russian, challenged by distances without precedence in vastness, disease, notably scurvy. The causes of that were suspected, but still not thoroughly understood. And hostility, unfriendliness of other Europeans, the Spaniards on one side, the Dutch on the other. All this kept European knowledge scanty until the mid-18th century. Then came James Cook. To call him the British Columbus doesn't do him justice. He left his successors with little to do except admire. A Yorkshireman, 
he first worked in the coastal traffic, carrying coal from Newcastle to keep London in business. He became a great seaman and a great leader, stern but just, always concerned with the welfare of his men. Cook learns that a great unknown continent does not exist, and that strategic thinking had to adjust to islands instead of a vast unknown continent. Cook was accompanied by a wealthy scientist, Joseph Banks, who, along with others, engaged in huge collecting efforts. Science then enjoys great vogue. It's the period of the Enlightenment. Cook's voyages stimulate cartography, ethnology and anthropology, hydrography and astronomy, ultimately science as a whole. Expeditions of that time always include an artist, the information gleaned was published and widely discussed, not sequestered in archives. But the major purpose of oceanic enterprise was economic and strategic, not intellectual or aesthetic. And exploration all too easily becomes exploitation. Some Europeans develop a certain sense of cultural objectivity, but most still believe that Europe was the light of the world and Europe's mission was to enlighten the benighted, benefiting Europe while doing so. The cardinal principle of British strategy was to maintain a balance of power on the continent, ideally through diplomacy, and this meant subsidies. Thus, the British built alliances with nations fighting the primary enemy, France, whatever the French regime, be it Bourbon or Bonaparte. Sea power provided the chief weapon for the British. Even one of its greatest generals, Wellington, would be skeptical of a standing army for Britain. Exotic, he called it. We should be mad were we to make a pet of it. By the late 1700s, Britain had created the world's most efficient fighting fleet, built upon mastery of many difficult and advanced technologies. British ships were not necessarily better. They were often less well-designed than French or Spanish ones but they could sail faster and fire more accurately because they had more training than their rivals. At sea, handling a ship required a high level of skill achieved by long experience and continual practice. A high fighting spirit gripped British officers stimulated by prize money, which was shared by all, even seamen, although not equally. Finding good seamen was the chief problem. In the Royal Navy, felons, paupers, and foreigners of uncertain background and character were all too prominent. Despite the reforms of Pepys, conditions were poor. Dr. Johnson could still declare that going to sea was like going to jail, with the risk of being drowned. 
naval pay was lower than that in the merchant marine, the discipline harsh. Two-thirds of the ship's company were unskilled or semi-skilled and had to be whipped into shape by the others, literally as well as figuratively by the cat, a whip with nine knotted cords. Seaman Samuel Leach reports the results of flogging. The lacerated back looks inhuman. It resembles roasted meat burnt nearly black before a scorching fire. And yet the punishment did not kill. The sailors' skills were too much in demand for that to happen. Hauling and pulling guns and sails was tough and often dangerous physical work with frequent injuries. Medicine was primitive. Surgery performed without anesthesia. The surgeon took out his knife and the hapless patient was given a slug of brandy and an iron bar to chew on with crew members holding him down. Living conditions were poor. Sailors were crowded together, often cold with wet clothing and sleep-deprived. A shortage of water meant poor hygiene, with skin ailments and lice abounding. Spanish hyperbole had it that the lice were so large that some of them got seasick and vomited up flesh they had bitten from apprentice seamen. Durability of food was the chief challenge. Salting, drying, and pickling were the only means of preservation and immediately restricted what could be served. Food suffered from lengthy storage under poor conditions. Sailors used the term dog's body to describe its quality. The drinking water stored in casks would deteriorate taking on a biological life of its own, and the staple ship's biscuit deteriorated. Men complained that it stank of rat urine and that it was maggot-ridden. Midshipmen staged races with walking biscuits moving across a table. Salt meat, primarily beef and pork, accompanied the biscuit. Aged salt Beef was hard enough that one talented seaman was able to carve a snuff box out of it. Dried peas and a bit of cheese might supplement. Rat emerged as a delicacy. Skinned and broiled, it was healthful because rats synthesize and store vitamin C, the essential antiscorbutic. One admiral described rats as Tasty as rabbits, but not as large. Casualties in the Royal Navy are revelatory. 31% died of accidents, 10% from shipwreck or fire, only 8% from enemy action, 50% died of disease. Here in the USA, 30% of Salem's young sailors did not reach their 30th birthdays. Long voyages inevitably led to scurvy, a disease of physical degeneration. First, teeth and hair fall out, then skin ulcerates with pain in the joints, 
old wounds reopen, lassitude, depression, blindness, and death follow. But recovery could be rapid, indeed miraculous. Seafarers learned that fresh meat and fresh vegetables could prevent and cure scurvy. Lemon juice was found to be efficacious. It was easy to store, and Sicily becomes a primary source of lemons for the Royal Navy. Cooks issued sugar to make lemonade. Many sailors preferred to mix their juice with their rum ration. The lemon made protracted naval blockades possible. Shipboard survival depended utterly on dedicated, skilled teamwork and achieving mutual respect and confidence in an autocratic society. The necessity of skills had been noted long before. Thucydides has Pericles saying to the Athenians, Seamanship is an art like any other. It is not something that can be picked up in one's spare time. Indeed, it leaves no leisure for anything else. Sailors were known appropriately as hands, their most important asset. Trained muscle power created a well-oiled human machine. The daily grog, rum rations, helped assuage hunger, fatigue, cold, and pain. But there were never enough seamen to man the Navy without jeopardizing the merchant marine. Hence, recruitment of foreigners in the press gang looking for gullible victims becomes a familiar waterfront sight. The wartime demand for skilled seamen, especially topmen, was twice the supply. This was not a job for the acrophobic. Climbing to the top of a 50 to 60 foot mast, swaying in the swells of the water, demanded both the strength of young manhood and long experience. A good topman needed to have gone to sea as a boy and undergone intensive training. He would then be ready in his late teens. By his early thirties, he would no longer be sufficiently agile. Patrick O'Brien, in his series of novels, familiar, I'm sure, to uh, many of you, describes all this very well. British supremacy at sea was based upon a slowly but only slowly changing naval technology. The larger ships of the Third Anglo-Dutch War of the 1670s could have fought in the line at Trafalgar in 1805. The basics were the wooden hull, the canvas sail, and the iron cannon. The gun was hand-operated at visual range muzzle-loading, and smooth-bore, firing solid-iron projectiles. A ship's firepower was formidable. 
illustrating the central technological economic factor of early modern history, the superiority of water carriage over anything on land as a weight carrier. Historian John Keegan, contrasting Waterloo, 1815, fought on land with Trafalgar, 1805, fought at sea, notes that the throw weight of the fleet was far greater than the throw weight of the army. The army had to drag its guns overland, a laborious and slow process, whereas, with relative ease, ships could not only carry more guns, but also carry them faster at a time when, in good weather, a ship could make a run of 130 miles a day. A horseman at that time could travel a hundred miles in a day, but an army no more than thirty. Until the railroad and the electric telegraph, people and ideas usually traveled faster by sea than by land. Warships were large investments, their construction a lengthy process, their maintenance expensive. Even in peacetime, they required constant attention, fighting salt, sun, wind, and storm, their rigging and masts so exposed to weather. Thus, navies were more weather and climate dependent than armies. Barnacles attacked the hull, and weeds would slow a ship's speed. In the warm water of the tropics, below decks, one could even hear worms gnawing. Copper sheathing, introduced by the 1770s, was expensive but effective. The great Admiral Collingwood said his flagship Venerable was so completely rotten as to be unfit for sea. We've been sailing for the last six months with only a copper sheet between us and eternity, the Admiral wrote. The ship of the line, bearing sixty or more guns, was invulnerable to all but her own kind. The critic John Ruskin would say, A ship of the line is the most honorable thing that man as a gregarious animal has ever produced. Second importance to the ship of the line would be the frigate, a fast scout with twenty to fifty guns. Others in a fleet would be a miscellany, a complexity of sloops, brigs, schooners, and so forth. Big battles were usually indecisive. Ships seldom sank in action. More frequently, they would surrender. Defeat was usually the result of severe damage to the rigging and casualties suffered in hand-to-hand combat. Sinking was usually due to fire and explosion from the powder magazine. From 1785 to 1815, the Royal Navy wins an unprecedented series of battles against the French and their allies, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Danes. Trafalgar in 1805 was the climax of a series of victories, reflecting in part development for the first time of an effective signaling system. Trafalgar carries mythical weight, 
a triumph for Britain, just as the Armada was a triumph for England. It was the apotheosis of Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson, already a hero, the most popular man in England, recipient of rock star adulation, which he carefully cultivated. Wherever he went, he was greeted by bands playing, Hail the Conquering Hero Comes! Nelson was tiny, frail. He lost one eye and one arm in battles, but women found him irresistible, even though he treated his own wife abominably. Certainly, he was vain and moody, but he had a genius for leadership. Choosing to surround himself with younger officers in the same mold, his band of brothers, he called them. Bold and talented they were. Nelson exercised what can be described as modern management style, delegating authority and encouraging initiative. His flagship victory is preserved at Portsmouth. You can stand on a brass plate marking the precise spot on deck where he fell mortally wounded a conspicuous figure with his great three-cornered hat, picked off by a French sharpshooter. Thank God I've done my duty, were Nelson's last words. Legend has it that for the long voyage home, his body was put in a great cask of brandy, but his shipmates tapped the keg en route, leaving Nelson in not very good shape upon arrival. No matter... He ascended to St. Paul's Cathedral, where he now rests. Nelson would be as great a hero for the 19th century as Churchill was for the 20th, both iconic figures for the Navy and the nation. Churchill always liked to refer to himself as former naval person. The stunning success of Trafalgar, in effect, ended the naval war. It killed any French hopes of invading Britain and cut France off from a wider world and its trade. Meanwhile, for the British, a critical timber shortage was developing. It was always available, but increasingly expensive because it was imported. Many ships were built of unseasoned, inferior timber and were short-lived as a result. To build one ship of the line required 2,000 oak trees, 57 acres worth. It was said that with the masts of the fleet, England transplanted her forests to the sea. Dire need provided a major impetus to search for new materials. The Industrial Revolution would rescue the Royal Navy from a growing crisis. Cheap iron plates became an effective substitute for expensive oak planks.
Meanwhile, what was happening in France, Britain's primary enemy? The international maritime competition tightens as the two nations confront each other. Join us next time in episode 16, France as Oceanic Competitor, as we look at this tension. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>